Hello, Omo sapiens out there. Welcome to Omo. Hey, you're going to notice the last time you joined us, we were live from Oberlin. And uh, in this episode coming up, we do a lot of talking about how we are so excited to be going to Oberlin. So yeah, we recorded this episode a while back, but it's just as relevant. It's a great interview and we think you're going to have a good time. So stay tuned. This is Omo. This is Elmo. This is Elmo. This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Welcome everybody to Omo. We're glad to have you here with us today. I've got my co-host Jerry Lynn with me. Hi, Rosie. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I I just um finished arguing with some bowery hairs and I won. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How about yourself? What you been doing today? Uh, well, I've been packing for Oberlin Restoration, which is next week. So uh, I've been putting most of my workshop in boxes and getting the programs tools around and ready to uh, go in the car and take the drive west. I'm really excited. I'm packing up too. Can't wait. Good. Cool. Our guest coming up is actually someone who is at Oberlin doing the, uh, I believe, the making class this week, and we'll introduce her. Our theme for today is uh, Next Generation, and we wanted to touch on this. There's so many families in this business that have handed down their knowledge, their skill set, their tools to the next generation and the next generation. And in fact, Jerry, I just, I went through like a cursory list of makers and there's, there's a good 30 families that handed down to the third generation. Historically, it's been the way you did things. People yeah. learned by their, uh, by their father or working next to another family member. And that's how they got into the trade. It's a fairly recent phenomenon that, uh, you don't do that. And so it's refreshing that there still are people in this day and age that are learning from family. Yeah. And we're really lucky today because you know what would be the best possible interview for this? What? If we could get an actual Italian who is a third generation maker. Shut up. Yeah. So we've got here today, Sophia Vittori. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I I just Sophia, I just want to hear you talk. I just the cadence of your voice. <laughs> can can you just talk the whole time and people don't have to endure our flat American voices? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Sophia is part of a multi-generation family making violins out of Florence in Italy. Uh I understand that you prefer making violins in the Del Gesu model. Yes, I like make Del Gesu model and also Montagnana model. Mm. It's one of favorite. Very nice. Am I correct in understanding that you're the the primary varnisher in the family? Uh, well, actually, everybody varnish, but um, varnish is is the thing I prefer the most. And I started varnishing and helping my father 
so when like I make the recipe and I bring innovation in varnishing in the family. Yeah, that's what I do. That's great. Do you do uh, a straight varnish or an antique varnish or something in the middle? I prefer to do maybe something in the middle because I, we don't really copy all the instruments. So I mean, uh, we have very, very a lot of models. Uh, so we don't make just the more famous one. So we, we have a huge collection of uh, form and models. But then about arching and what can be anything else, um, we, we used to go upon our um, inspiration. Okay. Uh, especially, yeah, me, I, I really don't, don't copy. But then the varnish looking, it's a little old style but not aggressive. <laughs> and I understand you got the recipe originally from your grandfather? Yeah, exactly. And he got the recipe from other old violin makers before him. So tell us everything about your grandfather. Yeah, we want to know the secrets. <laughs> yeah, I will not tell you the secrets, of course. <laughs> so my grandfather uh, started in 1935 in a small little town in the mountain uh, that it's called Firenzuola. And this town is located in Toscany, um, um, 50 kilometers north from Florence. So actually it's up on the mountain between Firenze and Bologna. Mm-hmm. And he was violinist, violist, and he was playing also guitar. We have a very special documents when he was um, like, 15, 17, and he had the permiss of playing around and making like serenades. So I don't know, like boys were like hired him to play for the the girlfriend under the <laughs> chorus. So that's something was really happening. So wow. And so there was a special permiss to do that. And he was also going around other town, little town to do this job. And, and then he was playing violin and viola, and, and he got interested in the instruments. So he opened his violin and looked how it was made, and he started trying to make the violin. And can you imagine in the 1930s, in the middle of the mountains, in a little town, start making violins with no tools, anything. So he had a friend that was a blacksmith that was helping him uh, building the tools that he needed and he had in his mind. Um, and then he was uh, writing some letters to some violin makers that were uh, close to Bologna and they were ans- answering him back. And he was going by foot to Firenze to see and visit other violin makers. It takes like uh, one day. And then, and then he participated to some uh, exhibition and and he got a medal for one of his violin. I just want to make sure I understand. Did you say he would walk on foot for one day? Yeah. To go meet these people? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so he yeah. got a medal. <laughs> yeah, medal. And the violin maker, very famous, Ornati, uh, he, he really liked his kind of work and wanted to meet him. Uh, so after that period, he, in his instruments, we can see the influence of Ornati that also gave uh, the varnish formula to my grandfather. So we have that formula. Um, actually, the formula we have, they are all uh, spirit varnish. Ah, so okay. not like I mean, most of the violin makers in the early 90s, they were varnish spirit. And, but part of the... Um, 
the ground actually has some oil based. So it's a little bit uh, mixed. Mm-hmm. I cannot say only spirit varnish. So your your grandfather became a, a medal winning violin yeah. maker. Exactly. And, and what happened next? And I mean, we have to say that during his beginning of the career, there was the war in Italy because yeah. uh, in the 1942, 1943, and 44. Uh, so I know that my grandfather, that uh, Firenzuola, was actually a town in the Gothic line. So that was the line that was dividing the, the German from mm-hmm. then the Alleati, so American that were uh, coming to free Italy. And, and so Firenzuola was completely uh, erased with the bombing. Uh, and my grandfather, he lost all his, I mean, his workshop, so everything. Oh, my goodness. So he, That's terrible. I'm sorry, he lost his workshop in the bombing? Yes, exactly. And I mean, when there were sea soldiers coming, so he had like buried in the ground some violins. He buried some violins in the ground? <laughs> Yeah, like clothes in some case. Wow. So and then down uh, because to to, to don't be uh, like taken by the soldiers, and and after the war, so when the war was finished, there were Americans in um, in Firenzuola for uh, their start rebuilding, and we know that my grandfather he exchanged one of these violins that he has taken away. Uh, for uh, some bag of coffee and sugar. Wow. Because he said so much that people don't have coffee that, I mean, that was the value of a violin. Well, those are daily essentials, so I get it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. And we actually, that that is really nice because some years ago, a family in, uh, from America, they came to visit us in the workshop and they were the relatives of, of the soldier that had my grandfather violin. So, and they wanted to, to meet us and, and visit the workshop. So we we talking, we understand that was one of these violin that my grandfather had exchanged for something that in the moment that they didn't have anything because they lost all with the war. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. So I imagine there was an extensive rebuilding. Yes, exactly. So then they rebuilt all the houses, all the town. And, and they asked my grandfather to move to Florence, uh, where, I mean, the big city. But he never wanted to leave the mountain. He was so much related to his place that they were calling him a little bit for uh, making fun, uh, the violin maker of the mountain. And then he wrote that, he used to write that on his labels. So it's written Dario Vettori, Il Liusaio della Montagna, that means the violin maker of the mountain. And and then who moved to Florence uh, was my uncle and my father that they moved to Florence and they are both violin makers. Now my uncle is retired. But my father still works, and in the workshop there is me and my two brothers, Dario and Lapo, and I'm in the middle. <laughs> Do you ever have to just get away from them? Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's tough working with people you're not related to, but when you work with people who are family, yes. uh, that creates a, a really different dynamic. How do you deal with that? 
oh my God, everybody lives in his own home. <laughs> so we don't live together. We work together and sometimes we have big arguments. But then, I mean, I think the good thing of working with family is that we are honest each other. Because if you make a mistake and you show to also some colleagues, it's difficult that somebody will tell you exactly, I mean, oh my God, that's really horrible. Maybe they say, oh, it's nice. With the family, I mean, if I see something that I don't like, I tell my brother, I mean, oh, that's horrible. And so that's <laughs> the way you can go on. And so, yeah. <laughs> Do you talk about work at family gatherings? Like you're around for Christmas dinner and do you talk about work then or do you try to avoid that? I mean, when you work and you like what you do for work, or you have the feeling, oh, you are never working or you are always working so the same okay i definitely understand that <laughs> i'm doing my holidays in Oberlin at the work yes I, yes yes i totally understand that and we haven't talked about that you um you're at the location where i actually met my two co-hosts chris and jerry one year ago and uh after that we decided to make a podcast that place in my mind is pure magic Tell us a little bit about your experience being in Oberland, Ohio. It's hot, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've been here last year for the first time. And my brother, Dario, uh, he was in Oberlin um, 10 years ago and nine years ago. And after that, he always was telling me, you should go, it's fun, you should go, it's fun. But I was a little bit afraid because I have learned at home, I mean, with my father, so... I didn't have really um, a school education for uh, so many things. I do my way because my father, when he was teaching us, was very enthusiastic. He's very enthusiastic. So there is everything. Oh, wow, that's great. Wow, go, go. So, I mean, just I start varnishing. He put my brush in my hand. That's a violin. Go. And then I start making experiments. So very free. And so many things, like we never considered the... Um, density of wood it's something we we don't know what it is i mean we just look at a piece of wood and it's nice and we start making the violin so the way i was feeling a little scared of going in a place where it's i mean there are so much good violin makers that winning prizes and i mean they they teach in schools but then once i was here after the second day we were a family so everything was fun and the funny thing is that everybody was <laughs> i also won an, uh, an award uh, for excellence in tool making because i teach them how to um, make a scraper with glass ah because that, that is something my grandfather was doing because during the war they didn't have i mean after the war the scrapers so they were cutting glass in a way that comes sharp enough to I mean, use it as a scraper. And so I was, I brought with me some glass. I was there tick, tack, and everybody was looking, what are you doing? I mean, <laughs> I mean like a class and that was fun. I was teaching how to make the glass scrapers. <laughs> That's incredible. That's great. And um, for, I mean, people use scrapers for many different things in making. Um, do you use that for a specific task? Oh, I use the glass scrapers like for uh, make ribs uh, thinner oh. or uh, okay. for the arching or for uh, the neck. I mean, whenever for, I... So do, for yeah. actually on the wood? Yes, yes. Great. Yes. Sophia, you are making so many people feel better. 
by admitting <laughs> that you were scared a, a third generation Italian maker <laughs> to admit that I, I think is putting a lot of people at ease. <laughs> so thank you. I was feeling like there are too many value makers here. water. <laughs> yeah. But it's really productive and I tried to, to use the oil varnish. So I brought something, I mean, new in the way I'm working. Uh, I didn't abandon I mean, our varnish, because I think the thing that people that come in Oberlin, uh, you see so many good things, so many new way of doing that you can lost your way. So like, oh my God, I, I'm making everything wrong. Sure, you can have too many choices. Yes, but then I think everybody uh, look at each other, but then to find his own way of doing things, because you can have the same brush and the same color and will never come the same instrument. So then... Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and so I like we didn't have the UV box in the workshop, and we built mm -hmm. one, and it's helping for tanning the wood before. I mean, also our varnish. So yeah, very cool. Okay, so you built a UV box so that before you actually apply varnish, you could tan the violin wood. Um, well, Am I saying that right? <laughs> Yeah, I understand. I was, I mean, I was obtaining the color uh, with the, like, color in the wood. Ah. Uh -huh. Yeah. But most of them for tanning, because <laughs> luckily we have a lot of requests, so we don't have a lot of time to leave the violin in the, <laughs> the, the UV box. So more than for tanning, I'm using it for, like, drying and also uh, tanning the spruce, because uh, okay. it's faster. So after the ground... Uh, when I I use albumina for the ground albumin, mm -hmm. and when I put it to tan, it comes immediately a nice brown color. So mm -hmm. uh, because going with the maple with coloring, it's easy. But with the spruce, it's very I mean hard because you can invert the grain, then it can be a mess. So I mean being able to to have a darker color on the spruce. Uh, it helps a lot. So would you say that your varnish is something that would allow people to easily identify your family's instruments as a as a kind of a thing that ties it all together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Are there any other markers that you think set the instruments aside as unique? Um, well, the, the funny thing is that we are four actually working together. So my father and me and my two brothers. Mm -hmm. Our instruments are completely different. So maybe my instruments can be more similar to my father's one. So we work more uh, passionate <laughs> and my brothers are more precise. Um, so they prefer to varnish the straight varnish, maybe not like uh, Cremona style. So a little bit um, like the, the edge, I mean, uh, not really straight, straight. But me and my father, we use maybe more crazy wood and more artistic. Uh, yeah, the varnish, the thing I like that I don't want to abandon completely uh, with other recipes is because I, we have the instruments from my grandfather and after 80 years we know how the varnish is. And this is something I think it's very important because sometimes you apply a new varnish and you don't know how it reacts in years. How um, uh, some... Um, I'm afraid sometimes to use some chemicals because you don't know them. We, we have seen some instruments old that they're like green or black or brown. And for sure it was not, I mean, 
how they were looking when they were just varnished. So there was something that was going on during the years. So to have some instruments with this recipe that we know how, after 80 years how it will be, it's something that I, mean, I think it's very important. Yeah, that's really compelling. Um, when I was thinking about talking to you, I, I kept thinking about um, this thing that I encountered when I, when I was in Italy. Um, it seemed like as an American, there was a lot of tradition for tradition's sake. But what you just told me seems like a great argument. It's it's not just for tradition's sake. It's because, look, we have this thing right here that's 80 years old and it still works. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. You know, whereas a lot of a lot of Americans always got to try the latest and greatest thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that, Sophia? Oh, well, the attitude is completely different. I mean, in, in Europe or in Italy, we try to like um, restore, preserve, maintain. Here, it's all you just put it away, I mean, down and new one. So it's, yeah, it, it's a completely different culture, I think, also. And, and also tradition. I mean, tradition is everywhere. It's in a restaurant and uh, yes. all little jobs. Uh, so you can go from town to town, not even region, I mean, town to town, and the food is completely different, and it's all tradition. And do you love that? Do you ever find that stifling? What What is it like to live in that culture? Oh, I really like it, yes. Yeah? I mean, yeah, because you can enjoy many, many different faces of uh, things. Uh, what I, I mean, I like the way uh, in America you live, so you're very friendly, and so also, I mean, it's, you, you can feel that there are opportunities so for everybody. Something that, I mean, in Italy, it's harder sometimes because the bureaucracy and the law it, it makes everything difficult. But, like, I don't like too much that, I mean, when you are in the highway, you can be in every state. You go out from the highway, there are the same chain restaurants, always. So Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not there any local, something that you can find different from one place to the other. Um, so this is something I really don't like too much. Sure. I mean, yeah, my, my very brief exposure to Italy, I was in love with, uh, it felt like a, a community culture. It, it felt like um, everyone was out on the streets, everybody knew each other. Um, you order food from the restaurant down the street. I thought it was very charming. I liked it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think in every place is there is the good and the bad. So we try to leave the good. Yeah. <laughs> well, in your workshop, where you are, tell me, is, is your place littered with memorabilia of your family? Do you have some of the same tools that your grandfather used? Yeah, we have all, and the funny thing is that I visited some, I visited some workshop from friends that I met in Oberlin, and so everybody has his own tools, also if you work together, and that's something that doesn't happen, so in my workshop we all share tools, so there is, I mean, one chisel, and everybody used that one, uh, so oh. then oh. everybody got upset because he just sharpened it and somebody else used it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's also what happened. 
But yeah, so we and many of the tools that we have are from I mean my grandfather, and also we we bought the whole uh, workshop of Igino's Derci that uh, was a famous violin maker in Florence. Mm-hmm. He actually was making violin for the Biziak family, and okay. so we bought all his tools and also the mold models that they were drawing in the Biziak family when they were have all the instruments to repair. So when they were opening instruments, they were taking all the measures and the drawings. So we have all these these things in the in the workshop, yes. Do you have a favorite thing that every time you look at it, it, it makes you happy about your family? Um, I have a very old uh, hammer. It's yeah. with made with wood, all with wood. And it was from the grandfather of, of my father. <laughs> yeah, this is something. It's always in the same place. I mean, all the tools, they change place always, and nobody finds any, everything for like <laughs> half an hour. But this tool is always there. <laughs> that sounds like my shop. <laughs> <laughs> You're going around. And why is, who used that the last? <laughs> I wish you can visit me one day. I would love to. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> I'll be I'll be right there. <laughs> we have also piano and um, a room where we can play. We organize some concert and we call the concert uh, Musica a Bottega. It means music in the workshop. And so we have some friends that they come and play like violin and piano or trio. Uh, we don't have more space than a quartet. And then with some chairs, so we, we have like aperitivo and, and music at the workshop. And it's really nice, yes. Aperitivo. And you, and you said it was musica what? Uh, musica a bottega. Musica a bottega. Yeah, bottega means oh. workshop. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm loving this. <laughs> uh, where do you find the bulk of your clients are coming from? Are they coming from Europe? Are they coming from Asia, North America, or is it a nice mix? Well, uh, first, we don't sell anything in Italy. That's very bad. But uh, yeah, <laughs> the Italian market, it's completely stopped. Uh, we have a big problem about culture and music. And yeah, so it, it's not an easy moment for a musician in Italy now. Uh, we sell all over the world. Uh, Europe, Asia, it's a big market. We sell a lot to China. Um, and Japan. My grandfather was selling in Japan as well. So can you imagine? Yeah. So many, many years ago. America, uh, it's a very big market for us. We had a period, I mean, when, yeah, when the dollar was so low, I mean, euro was so strong. So, yeah, America was a little bit not yeah. tough, you remember <laughs> a little and tough now it, yeah it was tough now it's it's a really good market America yes well Sophia what do you hope for the future for your family I hope health <laughs> ah. health yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that we keep going and enjoying what we what we do and and have fun yeah so you have children, correct? Yeah, I have two. I have two boys. Uh, Cosimo, he's eight years old. And Dante, he's six years old. I love those two. 
how would you feel about them following you into the business? Is that something that you hope for them or something that you would not want for them? Uh, well, um, when Cosmo was four, he started playing violin. I was super happy. And then after two years, he didn't want to touch violin anymore. And I was feeling so sad, like, oh, my God. And Dante was playing cello. And then, I mean, it's a, it's a hard moment for a mother because, I mean, music and violence, viola, cello, all our family. And, but I thought that if I was like trying to insist, then maybe he would hate music for all, for all his life. So when he turned eight, I said, okay, Cosimo, I really want you to have um, an education in music. I mean, you don't have to be a musician, but I really think it's important to study music. You really find nice people. You try to, I mean, work hard for uh, obtain something that, so like a piece of music doesn't come immediately. You have to study, practice. So it, it's a good way for um, learning and uh, attitude in life, I think. So I said, you, you can choose your instrument, whatever it is, but just choose one instrument. And he chose the saxophone. So now I have a saxophone at home <laughs> and he loves jazz music. So, and the little one, Dante, he said, oh, I want to play drum. So I have a drummer and I have a drummer. Oh my goodness. garage. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know actually what they will want to do in life because it's their life. So they have to, to choose. Um, because I want them to be happy to do what they, they like. I'm happy now that they play music. So then yeah. whatever they want to do, it's up to them. My, my daughter is five, and she thinks she plays the violin because she's picked it up a handful of times. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I have one final question for you, yeah. Sophia. Uh, can you tell us the secret ingredients in your varnish? <laughs> she already said no. You're going to ask oh, again? I'm telling you, love. No. Love. Love? Yeah. Oh. Perfect. That's oh. well played. Oh, my goodness. Very well played. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Rosie, and thank you, Jess. Yes, and uh, this is Sophia Vittori. <laughs> and a family of makers out of Florence. Sophia, does your family have a website that people can check out? Uh, yes, we have a website. It's uh, victoryfamily.com. Yes. And we All are right. also on Facebook, Victory Family Valley Makers. So if you want to follow us, you're welcome. Yes, check it out. Uh, well, Sounds great. I do wish your family good health for many years. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. <laughs> and I wish you all the best to you, too. Thank you. Bye. Ciao. Ciao. Learning Trade Secrets is a fine-stringed instrument making and restoration program where students <laughs> and professionals can come and focus on specific topics of making and restoration to further their education and skills. LTS is currently hosting Bow Making 201 with Rodney Moore, an advanced course for folks that are already in the business and on their way toward being professionals at the highest level. Please check out their Facebook page for photos and the students' progress. Yes, for more information and available benches for the courses offered by Learning Trade Secrets, visit www.learningtradesecrets.com. Chris, you want to do a, a feedback question? 
I do. Okay. All right. So from uh, Wyatt Galarno, I hope I'm saying Galarno. that right. No. Galarno. Galarno. Uh, Wyatt says, uh, I am a 19 year old aspiring violin luthier from North Carolina. Could you guys discuss your own personal fears about becoming financially stable and successful luthiers at the start of your careers? I absolutely love this field, but I find myself fearful if I can survive as a luthier. Oh, the fears. Yes. Yes. Okay. Financial stability. Oof. Uh, Wyatt, I don't know if I told the story. I, um, I cleaned houses for years. (laughs) On the side, I I had a a smaller operation out of my house and uh, kept on reinvesting that money uh, while I was doing other odd jobs, among them cleaning houses. And uh, over a period of years, that turned into something where I could afford to pay myself. And and then that turned into where I could afford to rent an office space. And then four years ago, I um, I guess that was in two years. 12 of owning this business, mm-hmm. I opened a full retail shop. Okay, um, so that's, you. that's how I did it. Uh, I, th- and I think that's uh, that's pretty apt because uh, people who want to do something which really moves them, you're going to be working other jobs. You're not going to land in an apprenticeship where they're like, we're going to give you $40,000 a year, 401k. Like, no, you're going to be bartending. Yeah. And you know what? There's, there's people out there that make really big, bold moves, business moves. And that's just not my style. It never has been. Um, I just do, uh, one small step that leads to the next small step. Um, that, uh, has been providential for me. So, uh, I'm going to keep doing what works. (laughs) That's a $4 word, Rosie. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I, I think I've seen more, well, I've seen more shops um, go under or break the luthier. Uh, shops covering anything from just building violins to doing retail when they've expanded too fast. Mm-hmm. When they've made a leap into a loan to get a bunch of instruments and they think the market's going to bear their presence at another level just because they want to be at that level. Um, mm-hmm. uh, financially stable and successful. Um so the hard thing is the people starting out and luthiers in general usually don't want to work on Chinese instruments, just want to make instruments and be like the luthiers they've heard of. Um, and I had to figure out that uh, my instruments always sounded good. Um, I'm a half decent player, or I was, um, but I struggled I still struggle, but I struggled a lot with my workmanship and having my instruments be at a level I wanted them to be at. Um, And I discovered that I had to travel myself Mm -hmm. with my instruments in order to create the career that I wanted, which was one where I built instruments at a workshop and then sent them to shops who liked and supported my work and sold Mm -hmm. them. And I was starving. And my Mm -hmm. lovely wife was uh, working at an ad agency and supporting us. And we were newly married. And I think that her dad was worried about it, (laughs) you know, as you would be as a dad. Um, So I had to spend the money I'd made in, I think this was 2009 and 2010 for my instruments to fly to different cities with my instruments and Mm -hmm. sell myself. And my presence became the thing that made my instruments viable to those shops and those markets. Um, 
and that that you know everybody wants to be the hotshot in any discipline, but especially like we all know somebody who in school was already making instruments that were world class or somebody who pops up at a, a convention or on Instagram and is just kicking ass with the work they're doing. But your strengths may not lie wholly in the thing which you're passionate about, which is building instruments and the calmest, sanest, happiest people in this business I know are often the ones who, um, a, a, a good friend who is doing very cool things in Philadelphia, building a next generation shop is uh, Elizabeth Shack um, at Mount Airy Violins and Bows. And I was talking to her on a sales trip uh, of mine once with Chris Ulbricht about how she got into it and she said that she was at a friend's shop and people were coming in the door and getting rehairs. People were coming in the door and buying strings. And she thought to herself, that's what I want. I want to work somewhere which is supportive of my love for instruments and money just walks in the door every day. And she has, um, if I can, you know, without being rude by being American and yet talking about money, she has a shop which is very stable yeah. Uh, because of her attitude in that way. And I, I respect the hell out of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at the question again and realizing that he told us to talk about our emotions and I just skipped right past that and went to strategy, which yeah. I don't know how telling that is about me, but <laughs> um, <laughs> my early days, my personal fears, uh, you know what? Uh <laughs> That you were going to die alone with a bunch of cats. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I, I I really am like hitting a wall. <laughs> <laughs> you've got you've got no emotions left. I have no emotions left. I I um, <laughs> I really I wanted to prove that I could do this, and so my emotions were just sh- sheer stubbornness. Hell yeah! Uh, and and very a lot of times feeling out of my element that I didn't know what I was getting into and I didn't you don't you don't know what you're getting into and then 16 years later it's a different level of not going not not knowing what I'm getting into yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) well the only way to combat those fears is to diversify your your stocks and bonds kiddo um the the problem with people who want to be artists is that they think that artists starve Mm -hmm. and uh, they don't sell out. They do their art and uh, onanists starve. Artists get paid and you get paid. Yeah, they do. Hey, he made it. A little late to the party, but, you know, I like to make an entrance. And it's recording you. Yay. Uh, we've been having trouble with Jerry Lynn today because uh, he hasn't been paying his taxes. So the government shut his uh, IP address down. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We were just telling Wyatt uh, in North Carolina uh, what it was like starting out. And uh, the thought that I was talking about is that you have to destroy your prejudices about the person you want to be in this field. And you have to be willing 
to try different things if you want to keep your head above water financially. You've got to bring in commercial instruments. You've got to revarnish. You've got to do work for other people. You have to be willing to let the current of where the money is dictate some of your your moves. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think there's what, like you said, there's what you do for art and there's what you do for money. And if you're lucky, those things collide, yeah. but they often don't collide. It's a great day when they collide, but yeah, man, paying, paying the bills are important. Yeah, um, and on I mean, on that note, Wyatt, the 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 advice that I give to young luthiers, even the ones that are working under me in a workshop at Potter Violins, is invest your own money in projects. Yes, in order to teach yourself how to finish things on a schedule. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if you're just tooling around with stuff that isn't going to affect you being able to pay your bills, then you will stay too romantic about how things get finished and go out the door. This is this is this is this is Dakota. I had a a violin top that somebody who had worked on it had written on the inside in pencil. Um, if it's still sounding bad, my advice is put in a sound post, tell them they need to play it in, and then move and change your phone number. <laughs> so they'd obviously like been so frustrated just trying to get this thing not to sound like crap anymore. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Omo. Omo is produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. Music is by Invoke Sound. This episode is edited by Jason Peoples. Like the show? You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Omo Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us with your thoughts, questions, or ideas at mail at omopod.com. That was Omo.